Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday, the 14th of September, as we record. This week, we are talking heavy industry and high income, beginning with a look at former turnaround specialist Melrose and its former subsidiary, Dow Lay. We're discussing recent figures from both groups as they get accustomed to life as independent businesses. Then our cover feature this week is all about the various subsidies being provided to a variety of industries in the US in particular. We are going to ask what that might mean for companies' cost of capital and how investors should think about valuations in that context. Finally, given the big increase in the cost of borrowing seen over the past year, we look at some of the investment trusts that are now trading on pretty chunky yields themselves and ask what kind of opportunity they present for investors. Joining me to discuss all of this are over the line, Julian Hoffman. Hello, Dan. And in the studio, Mike Fahey. Hi, Dan. James Norrington. Hello. And Leonora Walters. Hello. Hi, everyone. Melrose, as I said at the top, a former turnaround specialist nowadays. We'll get to the ins and outs of that in a minute. But how did the figures themselves look the other day, Mike? Yeah, very healthy. Um, revenue was up by about 20%. There was a 5.7% increase in its operating margin. It's uh, it's adjusted operating profit for the main aerospace business, which is the core of it now. Uh, was up to $175 million, more than double last year's $67 million. Um, I took a look at Melrose last year in the idea section just before... Um, they announced this split and the hiving off of the Dowley business. And the kind of key driver for the company really is this, um, like Rolls-Royce, they have these uh, risk and revenue sharing partnership, they call them, these long-term contracts for engine maintenance on planes where um, in the early years of the contracts, there's a lot of work done in getting the engines ready for flying. And then in the later years, they generate a ton of cash and become much, much more profitable. And when we spoke to Melrose's uh, chief operating officer, soon to become the CEO, um, he said that uh, these contracts, after a couple of years where they were really chugging along for two reasons. One, because they were in the early stage, but two, because flying hours were massively reduced because of the the state of the global airline industry. Um, after that, they are now in a much healthier position. He, he said of the 19 current contracts, they've got 17 are in profit. Yeah, and uh, I think full-year guidance was, was raised as well in the figures. So, you know, clearly that... Uh, aviation well aerospace improvement is coming through and that is really the the bulk of the business now you know the the buy improve sell they're trying to move on from that now that you know gkn automotive dalle has been spun off yeah uh you know so that are all their hopes pretty much now pinned on aerospace so their fortunes just tied completely to that you know how how does the business look now they've done that well i think to take a step back um GKN was the fourth kind of major engineering group that they bought. You know, this is a group that kind of floated on AIM as a cash shell back in 2004. And each time they've done one of these buy, improve, sell transactions, they've been much bigger and bigger in scope. And um, GKN was quite a fierce battle for it. There were 
massive union objections at the time it was done. It was a big deal, eight billion, eight point one billion, um, and um, there were certain conditions that went with it. One of which I believe was that they couldn't sell off the aerospace division or break up the business within the first five years. Now, as it turned out, the global pandemic meant that both of the key markets that they bought with the GKN business, automotive on one side and aerospace on the other, had a torrid time. And although they spent, they did do a lot of work on restructuring in both of them and in consolidating sites, in making redundancies, you know, it's accused of being an asset stripper, it says, as it says, improve in the middle of that buy, improve, sell model. So it was doing all of this work, but the the results still look terrible because there's no cash coming in, in both instances. Um, so by the time they got to the this time last year when we were looking at this as an investment case, the, the combined value of the business was still $5.6 billion. It was well below what they bought it for after years of seeming improvements, and there was no quick way out. Um, so... This idea of the spin-off was kind of forced out of necessity rather than any grand plan to change the buy-improve-sell model. Julian, you uh, used to cover Melrose, I think, way back when. What's, what's your view on the, the current iteration of the business? Yeah, I, I, I covered them back in uh, ooh, 2005. It was uh, one of my salad days. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting development that they've decided to effectively to become the business that they bought, which is what essentially what's happened with GCAN, um, by spinning it off rather than sort of breaking it up, it, it sort of lays the market down that that's the end of the, um, you know, that's the end of the show folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I don't think they really have any other choice. And as, yeah, as, as Mike pointed out, they were a cash shell to start with. And they've got to the point where uh, it, it's quite difficult to see how another larger entity is going to come along and buy it. So uh, it, it's reached its natural conclusion as a, as a buyout company, which I, I think is incredibly interesting because you don't see the, you don't see that process very often. It must be, I think, one of the few cases where uh, an entity has gone from virtually nothing to uh, so big that it's unsellable. Uh, and that's a very, um, that's a very interesting uh development as as far as i can tell uh but yes i I like the fact that they've spun it off because um double a is an interesting uh play on whether kind of a legacy businesses still have a future so they're very much into the heavy drive train side of automotive um it's very much associated with uh combustion engines and uh, high carbon emissions so that um It'll be interesting how it copes now with the changeover towards a sort of EV type future or electric vehicle type future, which uh, uh, really is the um, the, the prize that uh, uh, is available there, really. And um, it, it, it remains to be seen how that market develops because uh, see, China is the the, the growing. Uh, dominantly growing player in the electric vehicle development. But uh, the EU is gearing up for a trade fight. That could be a, a, um, an outcome that might affect its prospects for the future, I possibly even to the positive. We'll come to Dalla in a bit more detail in a minute. But before we do, I just wanted to uh, focus on Melrose 
and the valuation, Mike, because, uh, you know, in the past few months, certainly, well, certainly since the spin-off and just before that, you know, it, it's really shot back up share price-wise. So, you know, I think we, we still have it on a buy. I think mm. the idea being, you know, the growth prospects are stronger now, notwithstanding that higher valuation. Yep. Is that a fair summary? How do you kind of see how it's travelled? It is a fair summary. It has uh, increased massively in value. This was part of the, this was the kind of reason um, from the Melrose point of view for for this demerger, I think. The, the idea that it will be seen as a standalone entity as something, well, if we looked again with a, with fresh eyes, I think there's quite a lot maybe of negativity around Dowley and um, how some analysts saw its ability to cope with the EV transition, which we can come on to. But for the Melrose, from the Melrose point of view, there's been that focus on uh, on its cash generation. It's trading pretty much at the top of its cycle in terms of PE. Um, but when you look at its future projections for the amount of cash it's generating from these RRSPs, from these engine contracts, um, there's still plenty more to go. And it's still not quite finished with the restructuring efforts as well. They are still doing some work in the US in terms of consolidating sites. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's although it is at the top end of its historic PE, I think its historic PE is maybe weighed down by what's gone on in the past four or five years, and it probably deserves a slightly higher rating. Let's turn to Dowley then. As both uh, Mike, you and Julian have been saying, you know, the EV transition, you know, is key to its future. Um, the early signs from the figures it released just a couple of days ago suggest it is making the most of that at this stage. What, mm-hmm. what did you make of those? Yeah, um, it's, it's it's had, um, I think it's had some quite chunky orders uh, for EVs. Um, there, there was one mentioned for an SUV, it doesn't name which SUV, but it described it as a three-in-one order. And this is something that is talked about um, as it's become... Uh, an independent company's recent capital markets day it was talking about being able to um, generate more value from different parts of um, of the propulsion systems having having more of the propulsion system as its own rather than um, being mainly known for either prop shafts or drive shafts or small parts of of uh, an entire combustion engine, uh, but from that combustion engine heritage, I mean, it, it's it's used by something like half of global manufacturers. It's got a real position of strength, and the point Julian was talking about earlier about a trade fight. It's, I think, whatever happens there, it's kind of well positioned. It's got factories all over the world. It doesn't need to pick a side in in a trade dispute. I don't think. Yeah, this is the uh, uh, EU announcing an anti-subsidy probe into China's EVs this week. Yeah, uh, it's still very early stage. Yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously, that that Chinese, uh, you know, EV, well, nascent dominance is really you know, starting to turn heads, and clearly the EU has decided it wants to to have a, a look in a bit more a bit more detail. Dalai itself too seemed like it probably was going to raise full year guidance, uh, were it not for the fact that there's the possibility of some strike action in the US. Yeah. Uh, how material a threat might that be? Um, <laughs> it's always when you look at something like this in advance, it's always easy to dismiss it as mm. as a small thing. Um, the UAW, the big union 
covering the uh, car makers in America, talking about a strike at the big three firms, uh, which is Ford, uh, GM, and the old Chrysler business, which is now part of this Stellantis group that contains Fiat and Peugeot and lots of other uh, car makers. But um, the analysts seem fairly uh, sanguine on it so far. Um, they think there would have been uh, maybe a, an increase of about 5% or so to guidance were it not for this UAW strike um, and that the company's been quite cautious. But given that they're only talking about a difference of 5% or so, suggests that it's maybe not going to be a long-term issue or it's certainly not seen as massively detrimental. And what about the valuation to conclude for Dowley? How does that stack up? Again, I think um, it's, it's much more lowly valued than um, Melrose, but for quite obvious reasons. Its margins are still uh, fairly low and its its auto margins are 6.5%, which isn't great. Um, its long-term target is 11. It's still quite some way off that, but it's still in a market that is... Uh, recovering with from the semiconductor shortage and production levels, although increasing, are still massively below uh, 2019 levels, and its own profitability is still lower than 2019 levels. So the valuation it has kind of reflects where it is in the cycle. Um, of course, there is, um, when you look at the kind of big picture for car sales, there, there are fears that, you know, the general economic environment might weaken that going into next year. But it is still a market that's held up well so far and it's held up well because um, because there's been a lack of inventory and that car makers are still trying to catch up, really, from the lag caused by COVID. Well, one of the issues uh, coming up for, for Dowley and all companies like it, as we've discussed, is the potential, uh, you know, Butting of heads between countries, subsidies and anti-subsidy probes and what have you. And China is, is not the only country, you know, doing providing subsidies to key industries. Of course, the EU is doing it itself. And so too is the US, as we've discussed uh, a lot in print and on this show over the past uh, couple of years via the likes of the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, our cover feature this week looks at that uh, in a bit more detail or rather from a certain uh, angle James you you wrote the cover feature looking at uh, you know the, the concept of crowding out or crowding in and looking at companies cost of capital obviously we're in a situation now where interest rates have risen at the same time government spending on some of these programs seems to be increasing quite markedly too so it's kind of a reversal of what we've seen over the past decade can you sort of lay out some of your thinking behind the feature and what you've tried to set out to do with it well, really, it's sort of the fundamental question for investors um, is, is you know, what's your rate of return going to be on an investment? And there's a symbiotic relationship with companies, of course, because investors' rate of return is what it costs a company to raise capital. It's basically, it's the, if you think of it, it's sort of the incentive of um, that a company is giving investors to to provide them with finance for, for projects. And that's obviously, uh, cost of capital has spiked in the last year. Um, and that's happened um, really on the back of inflation expectations. We know that um, the headline inflation was very much driven by sort of, you know, a, a 
an event like um, Russia invading Ukraine, um, and uh, and there's also you know all the issues with um, coming out of the pandemic with supply chain disruption. But as we move forward, the return of the big state and subsidies um, it sort of reignites some old debates about whether state intervention, state spending is ultimately inflationary, um, and whether that um, will knock-on effect that that will have is is a is structurally higher inflation and um, and therefore you know a constant upward pressure um, putting a floor under companies cost of capital and what does that mean for for companies the theory is not sort of cut and dried there's um you know there's different schools of thought obviously Keynesian economics would would argue that that increasing states acting to increase aggregate demand with with subsidy leads to a multiplier effect in the economy or a crowding in if you will um, but obviously in the 1970s, the, the the idea that gained most traction was this idea of crowding out, whereby the government raising demand for money, so that, so there's a supply and demand with money, um, and uh, and also and the impact of their spending and, and the way they funded it, which is through debt markets would require a higher yield, but also they you know they need taxes to raise taxes to to fund their 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 borrowing or to make their borrowing sustainable rather. Um, that effectively raised the cost of capital for 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 companies and therefore made them reluctant to do projects so in a set effect the private sector is being crowded out by the public sector and now if you move fast forward to now um the issue is sort of it's um moved is it so much crowding in or crowding out or is it an issue of of market failure um where you would look at something like um uh you know if you look at supply chains and semiconductors for example something the US chips act um, was enacted to address where you know market has failed in a way because um, just left up to its own devices it's gone to the cheapest issue and now we have a huge supply bottleneck with semiconductors all going uh, massively dependent on Taiwan with all the geopolitical risk that that entails um, and another example you know perhaps the granddaddy of them all in terms of externalities climate change which um, the Inflation Reduction Act um, in part um, is is targeted at addressing from a US perspective and, and which has definitely set the cat among the pigeons with state subsidies around the world um, uh, evoking sort of, you know, response from the EU and other bodies and and China obviously is a planned economy itself anyway. In the piece you talk about so far the, the kind of the announced output or results, if we can put it so crudely, from both of these acts, the CHIPS Act and the uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, and so far, the the former, despite the latter having a lot more attention, arguably, the former is the one that's produced more results at this stage, at least in terms of what's been announced or being touted. Well, it's um, so the, the Chips Act. I mean, obviously, you know, we've um, the whole market has been set alight by by um, artificial intelligence, and um, and we we all seen what's mm. happened to sort of the stock prices of companies like Nvidia. We've got you know arm listing. Um, um, but you know, 53 billion was the Chips Act, and 166 billion of um, private investment has been announced since then. Now, how much of that the government program wants to take credit for, given the incentive of the AI boom and everything? But, but you know, that that suggests a sort of a strong crowding in narrative. Um, it's a, a lot of some. It's focused at, at reshoring to to. Um, uh, to, to incentivize you know the market where the market has failed to um, to actually to, to um, break the US free of some of these supply bottlenecks long-term strategic obviously I, mean, I don't think you know you're not going to get away from Taiwan and semiconductors overnight but but you know this is this is an important sort of strategic um, event something like um, 
uh, the, the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, it's more controversial. I mean, 369 billion in subsidies. It, it's it's had sort of um, um, yeah, the, the actual the direct sort of crowding in investments been much much lower in terms of clean energy projects with with that. But although there have been some other benefits um unfortunately obviously it's so political so you do see some quite dishonest headlines where people who are desperate for the ira to be seen as a success um are lumping in the subsidy the the crowding in effect of the chips act with with the crowding in effect of the inflation reduction Act, which is quite dishonest but that's not to say that further down the line the inflation reduction act won't have um a very important um role um, in in potentially you know if it, if it is successful in in, um, in in creating clean and secure energy supply for the United States, then that will have um, you know that will have a big you know big economic boost going down the line. And, and the, so the second part of the the piece is is you know how all this might feed into the cost of capital companies cost of capital and, and it's interesting angle I think one of the um, uh, people you quote in the piece. Uh, Stern University professor says, uh, you know, I know that in the last decade, it's been very fashionable to attribute powers to the Fed that it does not have and view it as the ultimate arbiter of rates. Obviously, we're still kind of in that mindset now with interest rates being increased. But but really, you know, the path of the cost of capital ultimately is being set by expected inflation, expected growth. Expectations of inflation um, are what drive the markets to demand the interest yeah. rates that they do. So it's so a longer term. If you look at the 10-year bond, and the spread over ten-year inflation um, protected bond yield versus um, oh, sorry over the, the nominal bond over the um, inflation protected that that gives you an idea of sort of the inflation um, expectations of the market. Now that even though we we do tend to to you know watch with bated breath every time the, there's announcement of interest rates over the last eighteen months, it's really um, there's a strong argument that that the um, that you know, in conjunction with looking at a lot of measures like sort of you know the tightness of labour markets, etc., that central banks are sort of being led by um, market demands of, of interest rates of what the terminal rate may be, um, and that's that's effect is it puts a floor under you know what companies can raise because bond yields, um, the, effectively particularly the U.S. Treasury rates, they're sort of the the, the risk free rate in in sort of you know the capital asset pricing model, which is hugely in, in influential in how all assets are, are priced. It puts a floor under the the you know what companies um, um, can 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 uh, offer in terms of an interest rate, effective interest rate with a gross redemption yield on their their bonds. So that the cost of debt finance raises in turn. It also means that the the equity premium that that shares have to offer over Risk-free government bonds is higher, and, and that that implies that share prices must be lower. You know, all things remaining equal, unless you know earnings are going through the roof. So therefore, you know that you your your cost of raising finance as a company is it's higher, which which that does a couple of things. I mean, one, it 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 raises the hurdle rate for any projects that that you're going to going to start you're looking to invest in. So in a, in in a sense, if projects are unattractive because you can't get a return, that sort of you know, crowding out in practice, if you, if you want to look at it that way. Um, but the other thing is also past choices you've made in terms of your capital structure. If you're debt heavy, then you need to deleverage because the cost of rolling that debt over is higher, which again, uh, you know, it, it causes a, a general um, uh, sort of um, retraction in, in, in terms of, you know, your, your strategy as a business, which, um, you yeah, know, and, and that obviously affects which companies are, are best to, to own shares in from an investor point of view. 
Yeah, uh, one thing you, you talk about in the piece as well is, you know, looking at the weighted average cost of capital versus return on invested capital is one good way to examine how that balance might be shifting for certain companies. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of um, you know, the, the the best keep on keep on going. Really, I mean, if you if we think we we did the this just a, a brief table example of, of Diageo, which obviously is a high quality company, high high return on um, invested capital, and. Um, and yeah, actually, he has used his debt in its capital structure. Um, but but that's a yeah, a company like that has a high return invested capital. It's wasted at its weighted average cost of capital. It will be affected. But 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 you know, but because it has a sort of a a lower than um, a, its beta is less than one. So it's it's basically a less volatile company than the market. Its cost of equity is a little bit lower anyway. Um, and uh, and obviously a good quality company with stable stable cash flows and good 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 earnings and is is able to to borrow at the lower rate that it can so so it's not it will affect some other companies that are are worse off down the down the food chain really in terms of credit quality um but that's not good for the economy as a whole because you know you've got um less investment going on you've got um banks that are exposed to companies with worse credit um, which basically means that, that that has a knock-on effect of how much you know, how much they're going to able to 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 loan out to to everybody really. So, so it, and and ultimately it will it feeds into to growth and 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 uh, and and everything. So so that's the ultimate sort of crux of it is is are we headed is is this wonderful sort of state intervention which will will have a wonderful growth effect in the economy and we're headed for sunny uplands um, or or you know is is you know with be um are we are we crowding out investment in the private sector and um and seeing ourselves up for a fall and that's that's where the jury's out because you know and obviously it's very emotive given um we're talking about issues such as climate change with 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 the IRA on the subject of the cost of capital and the risk free rate another piece in uh, the publication this week looks at funds and the yields available to income investors because obviously the the onus is on them to offer a high yield now that the risk-free rate is at five percent equally though uh leonora uh, you wrote this piece uh investors should be aware if they're not already that a high yield of which there are several now you know pretty chunky yields out there well more than several in the investment trust space that isn't a guarantee and you know you shouldn't just lap up you shouldn't just look for the highest yield you can find uh, can you say a bit more about some of the uh, the considerations we, we look at in the piece in the context of high-yielding funds about what to look for and what to be aware of? Yes. Um, I mean, I think the bottom line is there's no point having a trust which generates income but's losing capital value. Total return is far more important because, quite simply, you can create your own income by selling units or shares in investments that have grown. High yields can also indicate a problem with an investment trust or the assets it's invested in, or the assets that the trust invests in, um, or it could be also um, an indication that the market of investors think the investment trust is going to cut its dividend. And what about uh, some of the warning signs then that, you know, or some of the checks you can do to make sure you're, as insofar as is possible, uh, you know, you're not picking one of these, uh, you know, yield traps that is going to cut its dividend? 
Yeah, I think um, with an investment trust, um, most importantly, um, check its most recent annual or half-year report to see if the income it gets from its investments is enough to pay its planned dividends for the year. Um, and if this isn't the case, then you should have a look and see if the investment trust has has revenue reserves because um, trusts can hold back up to 15% of their income a year and build a revenue reserve to maintain or increase dividends in years when the income from investments doesn't cover it. Um, another option for the investment trust, and this would be set out again in, in its reports, would be to use capital to pay the dividends. Um, so if it can do these things, either of these things, then, you know, um, it might not be such an issue if it's not getting income from its investments. That said, um, what's really important there is its policy. You know, it might um, have the ability to use capital. It might have a revenue reserve. If its board isn't minded to, you know, maintain or increase the dividend, it won't do it. So um, there should be statements in the trust's reports on um, its policy towards dividends and what its board's latest view is on maintaining or raising the dividend and its plans for the current financial year. I think a good indicator, again, as well, is a trust and its board's record. If it's got a strong record of doing that, um, you think, well, you know, why should they deviate this year? Um, if they're saying they're doing it, perhaps it's never done it before. I think, mm, you know, is this, is this hot air? Um, so, so, yeah, they're all important things to look at. I suppose as well, we, we should consider this in the round insofar as, you know, a high yield can be concerning, but but a lower yield, even in the context of 5% risk-free rates, isn't as bad as uh, people may think nowadays because there's the prospect of, you know, A, dividend growth, B, capital growth in a lot of cases as well. You know, these are uh, movable feasts and something that could be compounding over a longer period of time. Uh that said, though, you know, when you do see some double-digit yields out there, they, they do, you know, um, they are intriguing in the least. And we do identify a few of those uh, in the piece. Can we maybe sort of highlight one or one or two that that are currently on, you know, really chunky yields at the moment? Well, I, I'm actually, um, I've, the example I, I, I thought of highlighting um, wasn't um, double-digit yield or anything like that. Um, I thought of highlighting Law Debenture Corporation, it's UK Equity Income Trust, and it doesn't have the highest yield out there. It closed yesterday. This was 3.76%. But, uh, and this but's very important. More importantly, this trust has delivered really, really strong returns. It's run by a fund manager called James Henderson, who's got a fantastic record. He runs a number of funds, and he's done really well for his investors with Law Debenture Corporation. Um, also, Law Debenture Corporation has increased or maintained its dividend for over 40 years. And, for example, over 10 years to the 31st of December 2022, um, its annual dividend payment increased 114%. I think if you're bearing in mind inflation, uh, you know, long-term investing, you know, never mind the highest yield – dividend growth, you know, that's what you really want. And, um, you know, I mentioned that you should look at the documents. Well, if you look at this trust documents, you'll see that the trust board said in July that it intends to either maintain at 30.5p a share or increase its dividend. 
and the trust had revenue reserves of 47 million at the end of its last financial year and that will be enough to cover the planned dividends for this year uh, um, 1.19 times, so more, more than enough. I, uh, I'm nonetheless going to go back to the, the subject of the double-digit yields. Um, but you're right that you know that is certainly a, a more mainstream and you know probably more reliable, certainly uh, with a longer track record investment trust. You know, Fair Oaks Income is one which we mentioned, which is uh, you know investing in CLOs. So that's the flip side, really. I suppose of some of these high yields is is an opaque area, is a risky area, certainly at a time of economic uncertainty, which again just goes to show. You need to be confident in the fundamentals of the trust rather than just buying it for that yield. Uh, I should wrap up as well, actually, by saying in print this week, we do look at one of the uh, UK shares with a big yield at the moment, M&G, the only UK company with both a trailing and forward yield in excess of 10%. And again, that might seem like, a, you know, is ringing some alarm bells, but Alex Newman, our ideas editor, looks at the fundamentals of the business and, you know, comes to a conclusion that, Things might not be as worrisome as that yield would have perhaps suggested in the past. So it really is all about those fundamentals, isn't it? And it's about looking at the company's strength. And we've got plenty of that in the magazine this week, along with all of our other features. But that does bring us to the end of today's show. So thank you very much to Leonora, to James, to Mike and to Julian. And thank you to you for listening. We'll see you next time on another Companies and Markets show. 